la 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 You're listening to Silver Threads, the podcast celebrating 25 years of the Hares and Hyenas bookstore in Fitzroy, Melbourne. Supported by the UNESCO City of Literature Known Bookshops Fund, in association with the Australian Lesbian and Gay Archives, and in partnership with Melbourne Library Service. Warning, the following program contains explicit content and themes. Hello, welcome to episode six of the Silver Threads podcast. In this episode, we go back to February 14 in 2015 to the launch of issue 94 of Sinister Wisdom entitled Lesbians in Exile. This live recording features the issue's editors, Joan Nessel and Yasmin Tambaya, and other guests as they discuss the many facets of exile and its fractured, resilient and complicated relationship to identity through various readings and, of course, intelligent and thought-provoking conversation. We wish to acknowledge the traditional owners of this land, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulon Nation, and the ongoing struggle of first Australians not to live in exile in their own country. And when I hear my American voice saying these words and know how deeply they have meaning, I know how long I've lived in your country, and it's one of its most important marks on me. We wish to thank Roland and Crusader and Hares and Hyenas for giving us this afternoon to share this launch with all of you, and Dai for preparing for getting the sushi. We need nourishment. Um, We also want to thank the contributors to this issue, the 94th issue of Sinister Wisdom, to Audrey Yu and Davi D, who will be joining us, and all of you on this hot day, on Valentine's Day, or whatever you would like to call it, um, for joining us. And we want to thank Julie Enzer for letting Yasmin and I go where our hearts and our political imaginations took us. So there are some things in this sinister wisdom that have never actually appeared before. So it's a new time. This is a, a coming together of continents, of, of continents. And um, before I read what I, just to tell you a little bit about sinister wisdom, this is its, its um, celebratory poster because this is its 40th year. It was only supposed to be three issues and we were issue number 94 and it's already issue 98. And this is actually the first cover, this part, of this woman. And though I'm talking about a cultural product that now it goes worldwide now, and we hope we made it more worldwide, but um, you have it here. You have your cultural products and your lesbian feminist and queer and gay imagination from that time. And so what these words said, said and this is Harriet Damon and Catherine Nicholson who were the first founding, um, uh, I don't know what to call them, uh, founding, I don't want to say mothers, it's too, but the first founding imaginations. They were living in a small town in North Carolina in the 70s, not a good place, probably for almost anyone. Um, and they needed lesbian writing. They needed lesbian imagination. And so they wrote, we needed more to read on, to feed on, more writing to satisfy our greedy maws. And very much captures you know, how much we wanted to, to see who we were. And then 
1975 in the United States, there were over 50 lesbian publications in print. There's probably two now. Uh, the lesbian feminist movement was in full throat. And then in 1976, Catherine and her lover Harriet, saddened by the death of the Amazon Quarterly, which in 1974, one of the other early journals, um, began publishing what has become the longest lasting lesbian cultural journal that we know of. In their notes for the first issue, the editors claimed, quote, we are the lesbian or the lunatic who embraces her boundary criminal status with the aim of creating a new species in a new time space. And I thought, wow, lesbian Stephen Hawking. <laughs> they only proposed to have three issues, but it kept going. And after 16 issues in 1981, they turned the publication over to Adrian Rich and her partner then, Michelle Cliff, both wonderful poets and writers. One way sinister wisdom has survived is that it never dies because it's always given over. When editors run out of steam, they just find two new editors. So it's a really counter-cultural economy, in a way. Now, Michelle Cliff, uh, who's, a, as I said, a wonderful poet and novelist, Jamaican-born, in the 1980s described herself as, quote, a light-skinned colonial girl child, halfway between half Africa and England, patriot and expatriot. And she wrote in the first issue, quote, I have made a lifelong commitment to a revolution of women. I want to serve this revolution. And I want this revolution to be for all women. I want sinister wisdom to continue to be informed by the power of women. I want to make demands on this magazine. And I want other women to make demands on it also. I want these demands to include courage and vigilance, theory and nourishment, criticism and support, anger and love. Right. So now I'm supposed to tell you about how I first met Joe Nestle <laughs> at the beginnings of this collaboration. Um, along with Joan, I'd really like to thank um, everyone who participated in contributing to it, whether you are writers or whether you were part of the editorial process or the printing and dissemination of the journal issue. Uh, and um, thanks also to everyone who, in varying degrees, gave critical feedback to the pieces that went in there. Certainly, I think Jones and mine got critical feedback from <laughs> numerous people, um, including, I suppose, each other. Yes. yes, okay, right. Joan was notorious long before I met her, um, in very good ways. And um, I happened to have the honor of working on what was probably the world's first South Asian lesbian newsletter called Anamika in 1985-86. And I remember the two women who were editors who were both from India and who were both in graduate school in the United States, um, and I was in grad school there at that time as well, uh, who said, we've got to make sure that we send a copy of the issue to Joan Nessel for the Lesbian History Archive. And so that's when I first heard that, okay, whatever we do as dykes, um, there's a home for it, and we just have to send a copy to Joan. And um, that's when I first heard of her. Now, I actually first met Joan at the inaugural awards night of the Astrea Lesbian Foundation, and uh, those were the awards given out for emerging writers, and I was really very, very fortunate and blessed to be one of the recipients of that inaugural round. 
And um, there was a celebratory um, event um, and sort of where you know, the writers were able to read our work. And Joan was emceeing. And so Joan introduced me. And that was the first time I'd sort of been in close proximity to this luminary. And I have to say <laughs> that I was far more anxious about this woman standing by my side than I was reading to this vast audience in the dark. You know, you, I mean, you couldn't see anybody's faces, but I was always so conscious that Ms. Nestle is there, so I'd better behave myself kind of thing, you know? Um, and I think our link sort of, you know, began there. And we've kind of been in and out of touch with one another because um, I went to, I returned to Sri Lanka to work there, and Joan was, and this was after graduate school in the States, and Joan was putting together the international, the vintage uh, anthology of international lesbian writing, and she asked me if I would send in some work, and while we were corresponding <coughs> on that, I also told Joan about what um, Sri Lanka was like at that point, and this was in, it was into the first decade of the armed conflict in Sri Lanka, and I told Joan what it was like. Even though I lived in Colombo, uh, which was far away from the actual theaters of war, which were the northern and eastern provinces of Sri Lanka, there was very heavy militarization. And if you had a Tamil last name, uh, as I do, um, there were all kinds of things that you, you know, automatically became hypersensitive about and hypervigilant about. Um, and so I reported that to Joan. And at some point um, during those years, I think this was in the early 2000s, Joan had suggested that we think about doing an anthology of, um, of some sort of lesbians in exile because Joan herself had come to live here in Australia with Diane. And um, I think we, we went back and forth about it. Um, Joan had approached a possible publisher who said that they weren't particularly interested in the topic. So when Julie Enzer said um, to Joan, well, you know, you, you have the chair now on this. Uh, would you be guest editor on an issue? And Joan promptly said, well, yeah, we, we have an idea in mind. And she contacted me and said, look, you know, there's this offer. Um, you know, let's take it. So that's, that's what we did. Uh, and so the collaboration... Um, you know, on this issue grew from there. And uh, I'm going to be cheeky and do a very, uh, a sort of a, give you a, a wee snapshot of what it was like to collaborate with Joan. <laughs> um, and uh, right, so we were towards, we're getting towards the end of putting together the final draft that we would send up to Julie. And I had come up from Sydney to Melbourne um, and was spending the day with, with Joan. And Diane had been fixing supper, and my sister Tania had also come to join us. And here was the report. So there's Joan going, you know, print, Jasmine, print, print, print. We have to get this done before dinner. Print, we have a half hour to finish, you know, printing out 50 pages. Print quickly. And so, and there's me going, now, Joan, we've got to make sure that we have all the pages in place and that, you know, the alpha and omega of every writer is there. We, you know, we don't want, you know, the last third of somebody's writing to go sort of parading off to the washroom while we are printing out, you know. And so, um, and the thing is, we got it done in time for dinner, didn't we? Yes. So we did. We did. But in the meantime, both Dan and Tanya were chuckling away in the kitchen saying, this is the Nestle Tambaya collaboration. You know, this is, this is what these people get up to. Could I just say, so I would describe Yasmin's time frame as glacial. 
And mine was more, I don't know, it was like a flash of a flame. But it was together that we produced something with care because Yasmin caught endless things that needed to be corrected. So always work with difference is what I say. Sure, being very gracious. Thank you. <laughs> no, I have to say, being cheeky aside, it's been wonderful working with Joan. Um, I'm going to um, read, um, read out a note that was sent by Julie. Um, I send warm wishes from Maryland in the United States as you gather to celebrate the release of Sinister Wisdom 94, Lesbians in Exile, edited by Joan Nestle and Yasmin Thambaya. I first read Sinister Wisdom in 1988 or 1989 as a young lesbian just coming out. Elana Dykewoman was the editor then, and I imagined a world in which I could, be a, I could be a writer publishing in the pages of a journal like Sinister Wisdom. I never imagined that I would have a part in publishing a journal like Sinister Wisdom and working with writers like Joan and Yasmin, whose work I have admired for many years. This reality, however, is what a lesbian community project creates the possibilities for us to work together and know each other in new and transformative ways. There are still many forms of sinister wisdom to be uncovered, discovered, shared, and understood. I thank you for joining in this collective work through this celebration and hope you will continue to explore sinister wisdoms in all of the work, they, in all of the work that you do. Best wishes from Julie Enza. I'm actually now going to get into the, the substance of the issue. And uh, Joan and I thought you would like to know a little bit about the woman to whom we dedicate this um, issue of the journal, Sunila Abesekara. Um, Sunila was um, an extremely well-known Sri Lankan feminist and human rights advocate. And very sadly, she died in 2013 of cancer. Uh, she was just 61 years old. I uh, first met Sunila in Colombo when I had returned um, after finishing my undergraduate degree. And she was one of the first three people to whom I came out. Uh, this was all in a work context. Sunila didn't necessarily work in the, at the Institute, the International Center for Ethnic Studies where I was working, but she was a frequent visitor. And so the first three people I came out to were all straight, as often happens in her life. Um, and, uh, or perhaps sometimes happens in our life. Um, it certainly happens in the, in the global south, um, where you might pick your comrades for different reasons other than sexual orientation. Mm -hmm. And uh, Sunila, uh, at that point, was already a woman in her early 30s, already in trouble. She was a troublemaker. She uh, was very involved in left politics. Uh, she, was a, she was an ardent feminist. She was very much a sexually autonomous woman. Um, and she was uh, a single mother, um, a single parent. She refused to marry the father of her child and actually got into a lot of criticism from her left colleagues, her leftist comrades for doing that. Uh, so she was already very feisty, you know, very invested in, in, uh, in being very woman-centered very, and very, very critical of uh, human rights violations even at that time. I next met Sunila 10 years later, and that was now in the mid-90s uh, when I uh, was in graduate school in the States and working there as well. And we had an international workshop on women's human rights in Malaysia. And I had just presented a paper on sexuality and human rights, and I'd identified at that point um, three groups of women who were considered societal troublemakers based on their sexual behavior. 
and one group were sexually autonomous women uh, who refused marriage, uh, chose their you know male partners, uh, were you know independent in doing that. The second were women who were single parents, uh, again you know considered sort of dangerous and all kinds of channels of possible sort of evil and disruption entering societies. Uh, this is true in many societies of the world still, as, as you probably know. And the third group were uh, lesbians. So uh, after I presented my paper, I, I sat down and uh, in the audience and Sunila quietly slunk into the chair next to me and said, you know, kind of in a whisper, you know those three women, the three groups of women you talked about? Um, I fit into all three. <laughs> and so I, I was still for about 10 seconds, and then I just covered my mouth and I burst out laughing because, you know, and I turned around and I hugged her. Um, I wasn't surprised at all. Um, I reckoned that was, you know, down the road, that's, you know, Sunila would decide that she loved women. Uh, she already did, you know, and that she would actually love women sexually as well. Um, so it was. So that was another revelation mm. for me uh, of someone I had, you know, great admiration for. Um, and you know, we kept in touch um, off and on. You know, I sort of meet up with her whenever I went back to Colombo, which wasn't very often, unfortunately. And the last time I did meet up with her was when I was there in um, 2011, and she was extremely busy as she always was, which made sure that. We caught up, uh, even for just a you know a cup of tea. Um, so she was always, um, even at that time, very outspoken about human rights violations. She, even though she was a Sinhalese and therefore part of the majority community, she was very very critical of both what the government of Sri Lanka was doing as well as what the Liberation Tigers of Tamil Eelam were doing. So she she got flack from everybody, and that's where mm. um, that quote comes from. That's where she came out with saying, "When everyone is criticizing you, then you are doing the right thing." And she wasn't. I have to say about Sunila that she wasn't just you know endlessly anti-government just to be anti-government. Um, she wasn't sort of an anarchist or some, you know, or, or she didn't necessarily belong to, you know, that's, that that um, line of sort of being critical of a government. Because there were many instances where she actually encouraged us, um, you know, or folks she was working with, to find allies in the government, you know, because there were allies. And I think if you wanted to get a political project moving, I think many of us have done that, is you, you don't just criticize the government simply because it is, it is the government. I mean, there are allies there. You find them, uh, try and work with them, uh, and if they aren't performing, then you say, well, look, this, this really isn't good enough. And she did the same thing with, with the LTTE, you know, just because it had positioned itself as the nationalist Tamil voice that um, they, they should not be able to just get away with the kinds of murders they were committing or dissenting Tamils uh, or anyone else who they, you know, with whom they disagreed. So this is what got her into that middle space of really being criticized by everybody. So I'll pass the baton on to Joan to continue. I am just feeling... I was saying to Yasmin when I, we walked in was that this, in a way, is a very emotional time as well because I just think what a journey my life has been on and the wonderful comrades I have walked with and who have walked with me with patience and I bringing me here and then that Yasmin and I, Yasmin who's lived in so many different places, sometimes because she's had to, sometimes because she wanted to, um, that we all come here. And then I look at all your faces, and I see 
my new community of comrades here, not so new anymore, but it's just a wonder. And I'm in my 75th year to have a chance to break new ground with new, I hope, sinister in the sense of, of thinking old narratives of predicted hatreds. Uh, okay, now I will introduce Audrey. This feels a little bit like the um, Oscars here. Now, and I'm one of those older actors, and they come out and they say, oh, what am I supposed to say now? <laughs> no, 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 no. Now, Audrey, we have formal introductions, and you'll find Audrey in the journal, of course. So I'll read her formal one, but then as um, Audrey's also a friend and a uh, brave, important thinker. So Audrey Yu is Associate Professor in Cultural Studies at the University of Melbourne, Australia. Her most recent publications are Sinophone Cinemas and Queer Singapore, Illiberal Citizenship and Mediated Cultures. And she's completing a monograph on queer Asian migration to Australia. And as we said, we take joy in upsetting gender things. And I've even known Audrey sometimes to do performances of um, Drag King? Yes. So two days ago, John wrote me an email uh, just to make sure that I was in town, uh, but also to give me instructions on what to say. She said to talk um, about what the theme of the special issue, what it means to me. So the theme of the special issue, lesbians in exile. So I'm going to kind of start to sort of do that. Uh, start from exile, uh, start from you know, thinking through uh, what it means for me as a lesbian of color, uh, but also thinking through the concepts within the context of the development of queer studies, uh, where I, I teach uh, uh, and, and, and you know, sort of find a place in and then try to link all of those together to my piece uh, in the uh, uh, journal. So if we think of, of exile then uh, in sociological terms, it's actually a kind of terms traditionally uh, used to describe forced migration of people who uh, cannot return to their homeland. So when people cannot return, um, the longing for the homeland is strong. So there is a, a sense of uh, embodied sense of deep nostalgia um, existence, then, is about living here, uh, but longing for a home elsewhere, a homeland elsewhere. So a kind of classical you know, kind of typologies of exilic groups, if you like. Uh, scholars have talked about uh, the Jewish group, the Greeks, the Armenians. You know, it's kind of traditional uh, kind of uh, groups that embody characteristics uh, of um, the exilic uh, conditions. So identities, then, in that context, whether you are kind of forced um, uh, away from your homeland and you're kind of, you know, very reluctantly living in the new homeland, uh, even if you're in, living in a ghetto, even if you refuse to integrate, uh, identities invariably change. You know, we pick up new things from the, the, the places we come to. Uh, we transform the old practices and traditions that we bring with us. So identities are, are hybrid in this context, too. So Exile, then, we can say is a journey, a journey that crosses geographical, psychological, um, and cultural borders. So for those who migrated voluntarily, 
And in the current age of co-presence that's kind of mediated by uh, new media technology, exile can also be a symbolic state. So a feeling of being on the outside. Um, and of course, that distance is ameliorated you know, in this constant oscillation between being here and there, or being in two or multiple spaces and times at the same time. And you know, with, with uh, the internet, you, it allows us to, to sort of do that. This kind of feeling of being here and there at the same time, this oscillation, is what post-colonial uh, scholar at Woodside calls contrapuntal, and that's kind of music. Uh, those of you in music, you're kind of you know, contrapuntal here and there. Um, so, as, as a symbolic journey, exile is a rich arena of cultural production. Uh, modernist writers, uh, avant-garde artists, new wave filmmakers, uh, in you know the the, the, the last um, um, fifty to eighty years, have you know worked with the the space of the exile as a space for transgression, uh, as a space for transgressing uh, normative traditions and practices. In lesbian studies, you know, the, the exile state uh, has also produced new fields of writing. Uh, lesbians of color and postcolonial queer scholars have discussed exile as uh, a state of uh, triple displacement, if you like. Um, triple, right? First, of being outside uh, heteronormative mainstream Anglo-Celtic uh, community, uh, Second, of being you know outside heteronormative mainstream um, ethnic community, and thirdly, of being outside um, mainstream homonormative gay and lesbian uh, community, and um, this kind of triple displacement has also produced has become a productive arena for thinking through uh, new new work um, as as well. So those of you who uh, read. A lot in gay, les gay and lesbian studies, you'll know kind of post-colonial queer authors like Jasper Poir and uh, uh, Gayatri Gopina have also forged new ways of thinking about the relationship between uh, migration, displacement, race, uh, identity, and sexuality. So in queer studies, then in queer theory, you know, being in exile. So queer theory is basically uh, a group of scholarship that has emerged in the last 15 years, uh, and it's, it comes from the West. So being in exile in, in queer studies, where I'm located, um, has, is, is also about um, finding new ways uh, and approaches to talk about new forms of sexual formations uh, that have... Uh, emerge outside of, of Western uh, queer cities. So an example of that is my work on Queer Singapore. It should be around here in this bookstore, uh, 2012 book. If it's not, it's on Amazon.com. Uh, in Queer Singapore, I talk about how uh, a gay city like Singapore has become a world-renowned gay city, but in uh, a nation state that continues to criminalize homosexuality. So the, the ways we think of how gay cities or gay centers have emerged, the traditional way has always been um, 
liberation, coming out, rights, legislation, equality, that kind of a framework does not really uh, exist. Uh, it's, it's not really suitable to, to think about, you know, sort of the, the sexual practices and cultures outside of non-Western centers. So being in exile in queer studies is about finding new um, approaches and ways uh, to talk about, you know, sort of uh, gay practices in everyday life uh, for, for me. Anyway, so my, my essay in, in this uh, special issue is drawn from uh, an academic book I'm currently completing of the same title, Queer Asian Migrations. And I want to link, um, so the, the kind of motif of lesbians in exile uh, of the special issue of the journal, I've lifted to kind of talk about queer migration. Um, and so I want to spend the rest of my talk uh, giving you two ways to think about queer migration. Right. Queer migration is a term that is usually uh, used to describe sexual migration. Falling in love with someone, a same-sex partner from another country, and you relocate uh, for the sake of the pursuit of romantic love. So, um, queer migration, the first way, sexual migration, and in Australia, two examples of sexual migration, same-sex interdependency uh, visa category, uh, so that's gay and lesbian partner migration. And the other example of that is sexual identity-based asylum, so LGBT um, asylum. So Australia has uh, been a very progressive country, one of the first countries in the world uh, to introduce gay migration, uh, one of the you know, sort of 15 countries, one of the earliest countries in the world to recognize uh, LGBT or queer uh, asylum as well. So in this kind of a context then, you know, sort of sexual rights, um, uh, sexual liberalism, you know, are used to kind of champion and promote uh, the progressive nation state. And you can, we'll start to see a lot of that with the coming legislation of marriage equality uh, as well. So that's one kind of uh, standard definition of queer migration. Now, this, the, the, in my book, I extend that and to kind of uh, introduce a second way to think about uh, queer migration. And I look at how uh, migration practices are queered and made deviant by the increasing securitization of border control. So queer migration in this context, you just have to think of queer as a verb, right? How do we queer migration? So queer migration refers then to the process where regular pathways of migration, or so legal pathways of migration, are made irregular or made you know, illegal, or indeed made deviant and queer, right, by migration and border protection policies. So we can see examples of that in the government treatment and media reporting of two practices of regular migration, asylum and uh, student migration. So these are legal and regular pathways of migration. We see, for example, moral panic discourses of homophobia and homoeroticism are constructed by the government and the sensationalist media when they talk about hordes of Iraqi refugee men squeezed into overflowing small boats, uh, or in the cases of uh, student migration, Indian international students, again, hordes and hordes of them living in a small one-room flat in Brunswick. So those sorts of discourses, I think we've been bombarded by them in the last uh, 10 or so years. So, as I said, asylum and student migration are legal 
and regular pathways of migration. But these, these discourses, from governmental discourses, media discourses, they, they draw out connotations of same-sex and deviant intimacy. So evoking, you know, sort of a lot of, a lot of men squeezed together in a small confined space. So these kinds of connotations to same-sex and deviant uh, intimacy, but using that to evoke the fear of homoeroticism and the panic of homophobia. So when we think about these two definitions of queer migration, for example, these two kind of concurrent uh, ways, kind of same kind of moments of development and these two sort of contrasting definition. The first one I talked about champions sexual liberalism and progressive nationalism. The first one is about erasure of homophobia and the acceptance of homosexuality. The second way I have discussed, you know, kind of use the, fe the fetishization of homophobic panic to further, to further deny the rights to sexualize and racialize minority others. So the first narrative, champions life, right? You know, um, marriage equality, same-sex reproduction and parenting, and so on and so forth. The same, the first narrative that champions life has been developed at the same time and concurrently with the second narrative that causes death. So queer migration then is this kind of, a kind of arena of contradiction where we talk about life and death issues. So I hope, you know, when, when kind of one, one kind of invokes that and in the context of the journal's theme of lesbians in exile, you know, queer migration crosses not only physical, psychological, economic, and symbolic boundaries. It is also shaped by the border. The border has become a place of mobility. It is also a place of immobility as well. So many years ago, when the Pet Shop Boys sang about going west, it, was, it became an anthem for coming out. Yeah. For many gay men, you know, going west was about, and this is in a context of rural America, leaving rural hometowns, coming out, going west, going to the city of San Francisco as the kind of gay uh, city. For those of us who live outside the US, you know, going west was always about you know, making that pilgrimage to San Francisco, to a, a western gay city, New York, Amsterdam, uh, and so on and so forth. Now, this kind of gay mobility, now we call it um, kind of gay tourism, right? So this kind of queer migration, right, can be likened to this uplifting kind of pathway of, of gay mobility from the ghetto to the mainstream. So that's one way to think about gay mobility, queer mobility, or kind of queer movements, queer migration. For many others who are queered by migration control as a border of immobility, so the border, the place of immobility is the border as a place that stops and restricts movement, a place that will contain and produce new kinds of subjects, uh, an arena that will create new kinds of enclosures. So that's that kind of border of immobility Going west, like coming to Australia, for example, for you know asylums and asylum seekers and an international student. So going west also reveals you know queer mobility as an unequal movement of travel. So where one, the first definition was about freedom and emancipation, the other is about containment and new restrictions. So um, my essay today. 
um, you know, kind of talks on one aspect of that. I'm not a, a, a creative writer, and Joan wanted me to write a little anecdotal piece. So I think the little piece that appears in the journal will probably become part of the preface to the academic book. So I'm better at writing academic, um, you know, kind of prose. So my essay in uh, the issue is an attempt to map my own journey, my own journey of migration from Singapore to Australia more than 25 years ago. So I focus on a, a small story, one example of my own story of same-sex migration. I think I can lay claim to being the first um, lesbian partner application that has gone through the uh, uh, you know, sort of immigration machine. And my application, uh, from the time I put in my application to the time I attained my permanent residency, took 10 years. And I had three passports, uh, because one expired, and then you have to renew. Three passports all kind of glued together, because I needed to show that I was on this um, um, uh, series of visa categories that allow me to enter the country. So I think a little bit of that appears in the journal. So the last time when I went to immigration to have this sticker that says, I'm a permanent resident, the immigration official was really shocked. And he said, my God, you have so many visa categories. I've never even seen anyone issued with so many. So I have, I have things like a one-day, you know, sort of uh, a category, uh, visa kind of you know temporary visa for one day for one week uh, for a month for three months for six months so I lived in very precarious um, conditions for for quite a few years so that's that story I try to write about um, hopefully through that little story to try to open up these kinds of broader contradictions around the conceptual and, and political issues that surround uh, queer migration so I really want to thank um, the the ed editors for doing a superb job of editing my work <laughs> so I uh, hope you enjoy reading that thanks Thank you, Audrey, so much. Thank you. So now it's my very great pleasure to introduce Davidi, who will read next, uh, or talk next about, um, yes, talk next about um, her engagement with this issue and uh, what it means for her. Uh, Davi was born in southern Louisiana and raised in southern California. She studied fine arts and has made paintings, sculpture, and furniture for a long time. Dee graduated from Scripps College, one of the last all-women's colleges in the U.S., and I quite admire that because I went to Smith, so it's no, one of the... We, <laughs> we will. I'm sure we will. Um, so uh, Darby's from Scripps, uh, and she graduated in 1983 and from Claremont Graduate University in 1985. She also has a penchant for machine design and spatial problem-solving, and this talent has provided her with income when art didn't. In 2000, demigrated to Australia. Currently, um, when not oh, she and until very recently, when not making paintings or furniture, she worked for the Australian Bureau of Meteorology as a spatial data engineer, helping to build the National Hydrologic Spatial Database. And I have to say, when I, I read this about uh, Davi, I thought. Yay, for you know, the first time I'm hearing of somebody from a humanities and social science background, art and social science background, who's actually you know, gone over to work with the STEM folks who do you know, science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. Because very often we hear people 
sort of, you know, dabbling the other way, the scientists who dabble in the arts, rather than the, someone from an arts background who very concretely engages with science and technology. That's because I went to Scripps College. Hey! <laughs> That's the answer. You can swing both ways. <laughs> so Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you all. I want to thank Joan and uh, Yasmin for including my, my work in this uh, issue because it is very much about understanding what exile is in moving to another country. And since Joan and I had this um, connection with being Americans who fell in love with an Australian and then found a way to move here and then had to make decisions, life decisions, about whether or not we were going to uproot ourselves at an advanced age or a middle life age to another country meant giving up a whole lot of things. And um, unlike many of the individuals in the Sinister Wisdom uh, Journal who wrote about this topic who were involuntarily exiled, Joan and I were voluntarily chose to, to make this this choice and make this decision. And so we've, since we've met each other, we've been a, a good deal of support for one of each other, and, and that has been a really important aspect of being able to move forward with um, making this a new home. Now, I'm a visual artist. I studied fine arts and humanities, and I also... Um, have also made my living as a machine designer, drafter, machine builder, automobile restoration person. Um, it, it's just a thing that that you you have, and it, it's you you. In, in many ways, that is a bit of an exile in itself. And what I really wanted to talk about was not just being physically exiled, but mentally exiled. In other words, we have a way of saying that you know our 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 abilities should be confined within arts and humanities or science and so forth and so on. And one of the things that has been one of my um, the, the things that has absolutely just pissed me off is that there was a time when artists were scientists and scientists were artists. And we embraced those things. And we could not actually be able to communicate our ideas unless we were artists to be able to draw it. And we could not be able to express the science unless we were able to draw it. And we could not be able to formulate mathematical symbols and hypotheses unless we were able to draw it. And that is a, a, a real bone of contention for me. And that is one of the things that I am trying desperately to be able to, to further with my, my work in my painting and my drawing, is that there is a huge range of mathematical concepts that are available to us, both visually and musically and in literature. And I was, I was listening to to y'all's talking about these these concepts that reverberated through my through my heart because I was thinking yes this is an, a form of exile where the borderline is this thing that we pass through like almost like osmosis we we are unable to actually pierce that 
that fabric unless we're willing to change and morph. And that has to happen on an atomic level in terms of our changing our personal beings. So one of the things I wanted to give you all a chance to think about, and that is is that um, when you read my piece, you will see that it is a, a piece about transformation on a fundamental, fundamental level. You know, you will die and be reborn in another country. That's the way it works. My recent works are just a waypoint on my journey in my painting. And I want to thank my partner for giving me the opportunity to be able to do that because she is a total support to the work that I'm doing right now. Since I've moved here, I have looked at and engaged with the Aboriginal artwork, indigenous artwork of Australians. And it is a sense of place and a sense of temporal uh, space that they are describing that's really un-European and is unlike anything at all that I have ever seen. And, And it's really an important viewpoint to embrace. And the last sentence of this biographical information really kind of sums it up for me. It says, exile is a state of mind. The exhibition that I've brought in flyers for is called Pricks because it's about cactus spines, also pricks of memory and pricks that you deal with and you know the, the pricks in your life that you get over and that you have to overcome and to, in order to exist the way that you want to. But it's the pricks of memory that we off, that remind me that we often live in a liminal twilight between now and someplace else. And exile is very much about hanging on to something else that was once yours and you wanted to have it now rather than embracing now and moving into the, appro- the appropriate mindset to embrace what you're having in front of you right now. So I drew myself a little diagram today. And um, I wish I had a whiteboard. <laughs> because it's sort of this, this fulcrum that's based on memory and now with pricks as the fulcrum, okay? <laughs> pricks of memory. And memory, when, you know, we have... Memory on one side of the time, time continuum and now on the other side of the time, time continuum. Exile speaks of dislocation, disassociation, loss, forced voluntary powerlessness. And belonging speaks to inclusion, family, familiarity, acceptance, and powerful. And Joan said that when she first started out this afternoon, saying... I now look out and see all of your faces and feel the acceptance of being in a new homeland with new friends and new people is moved from the exile to the belonging. And that's what really this sinister wisdom is all about. It's the sinister and the dexter. And it's the dislocation and the belonging. So our work belongs to all of y'all. Please have a look at some of the painting exhibition flyers I've got here. It's also advertised in Midsummer. If you want to play that background music again, that'd be good. Um, and thank you all very much for your attention.
So this is a piece from our contributor, Janet Jones, called Off the Body. So what's different about a butch in a wheelchair, you say? I know plenty of femmes who do manual trades. In my mind, I'm picking you up right around your waist, half putting, half throwing you on the bed. A few moments slide and my fingers are inside you. Well, femmes could do that too, I hear you say. I know, but I'm a butch. It's not the same. I feel the attitude, the approach, and it's different. It's just different. I can't do lesbian sex, fashion, or politics anymore, retreating along fibers and bones. If I had just made it through enough lesbian intersectionalities, maybe I wouldn't have been exiled. And a piece of information uh, for for all of you is that Janet Jones is a contributor who is in a wheelchair, and that is from her work. And I'd next like to read a piece by um, Cheyenne Glynn, who's from New York. There is no place for us. I'm a stranger in my own home. This was once a place for us, and now it's just a place. Once here and now vanished in space, like ancient relics of the motherland. Removed and replaced, displaced and disheveled. There is no mitigation through this silent arbitration. Our frustration is discussed in living rooms where there isn't enough room to live. And we discuss whether or not it is relevant to forgive this simultaneous influx and exodus. I keep hearing stories of the invisible. We are and have always been the true aboriginals. And sadly, I imagine a day when a person of African descent in New York City is a novelty and rarity because the scarcity of the most precious resource, land. The National Black Theater, the Apollo, Langston Hughes Way, Frederick Douglass and Malcolm X Boulevard, the Harlem State Building, the Savoy and the Cotton Club, and the list goes on and on, and rents get higher and higher. I keep hearing stories of displaced Brooklyn residents and the, and the gentrification of the South Bronx and wonder, will this be me, uprooted, cast away like a pariah, held a victim to the unnecessary commerce of space? Manhattan was purchased for $24. Brownstones in Harlem are selling for two million. You do the math. There will be an aftermath. Police are paid to stop car after car with black and Latino faces, and we are silent as homes are turned over because breadwinners are doing time. And those breadwinners were lucky because they were the few to find work. These prisoners have homes that are stripped away when income is lost because of an arrest and lawyers' fees and penalties for just being black. I'm a stranger in my own home, and you know this is crazy when the European even wants a part of the African ghettos. This just proves that we were already rich and always have been. We let this precious land slip away like water slipping through our hands. 
We move out of these rich cultural enclaves wanting something more when all that we ever wanted was right there in front of us all the time. We complain about the piss in the stairwell, the broken elevators, and the lack of heat in the winter while someone is ready to move into our neighborhoods. Like they say, someone's garbage is another man's treasure. It's time we start appreciating what we have and investing in our home communities before we have no home. Until then, there is no place for us. And um, I'd like to end this round uh, by reading one of the pieces that I contributed to this volume. This is called 30th, and it was written in July 2013 to commemorate the 30th anniversary of Black July, which took place in July of 1983. Black July was the anti-Tamil pogrom that is remembered as the beginning of the 26-year war between the government of Sri Lanka and the forces of Tamil nationalism. Between formulating responses to a research associate on the Asian century, straightening laundry to catch a winter sun, complementing my partner's sartorial choices for work, it insinuates itself. Not sly like a mouse nabbing rice grains in a New Haven pantry, or startling like an elephant stepping out from scrub on the road to Mineria. Just present, always. At times as at the small end looking rivers through a telescope. At times at middle distance. At times as near and as wide as this parched continent at world's end where I never imagined I'd live, and especially today. Today my father's people would begin to be erased. Today my family would know their disinheritance. Today in England, after an ecstatic university year, I would learn the terms of leaving. 30 years ago, today. And I have learned well the iterations Restlessness, no committed dwelling, no heavy furniture, although the movers debate the weight of books. Movement is permanence. Permanence is alien. Permanent alien. There was a point of departure. There is no point of return. There was a reason this journal had to be done. Part of what Yasmin and I are trying to do is extend what it means when we talk about lesbian issues. All right, now, I'm going to begin by reading uh, an author I've chosen to read, Samaha Bib, a Palestinian woman um, who lived here in Sydney, who uh, <coughs> underwent many, how can I say, rejections on trying to live in a place where she could where she could be all she was. I think I'll just read to you a little about her, and then I'll read an excerpt from her piece. Samah Habib is an associate researcher in the Center for Gender Studies at the School of Oriental and African Studies. Uh, at the University of London. She's the author of, now here's a wonderful lesbian novel, and I don't know if you have it, Crusader, Ragum and Nadja, 
a novel. It's a lesbian love story set in, um, in I would think, around the 15th century. In, yes, okay, I'll make sure. In, in, and I think it's in Egypt, in what would be Egypt. Um, she, her academic titles include Female Homosexuality in the Middle East and Islam in Homosexuality. Now, that was a very formal discussion of Samar. But the piece she wrote for us is the guts and bones and nerves of losing a homeland and of being an unwanted person. Um, you asked me to tell you about exile. I don't know which number exile this one is, but I do know that it was a recent one. I was hit by a train. I was on a metaphorical train. I was naive enough to think that I had the freedom to be homosexual. It was, after all, the 21st century. I could be gay and a scholar. I had academic freedom to think, and there were laws to protect me from discrimination. If the impact of the collision were not so painful, I might laugh at the ready innocence with which I believed in the veneer of civilization. And maybe if I were a white girl talking about white things, maybe, just maybe, they would have hit the brakes and tried to lighten the impact a little. But since I was a homosexual of the Palestinian persuasion, and neither my own people nor the owners of white land have any interest in the actual existence of someone like me. Since, unfortunately, I derail so much of their mythologies about themselves and each other, there was no need to hit the brake. And that's about a setback that she had that broke her heart so terribly. Where do I begin with just tangling the myriads of exile that seem to be my fate? Shall we start with the most familiar and accessible account of collective trauma? Shall we, we begin with the dirty word, in quotes, Palestine? Shall we begin with a Palestinian born into a Lebanese exile that was deemed too distasteful to be the subject of dinner conversations and classroom wanderings in the innards of Western Sydney? Nothing can send you further into exile as much as the ignorance of the magnitude of suffering that the cells of your body have inherited. And now this is not the whole piece. You can read that, so I'm going around. And um, I distinctly remember the moment I rediscovered my cultural heritage and my right to a place within it. For so long, I had been told and made to believe that my gender and sexual orientation were Western inventions, that it would be impossible for me to be myself had I been a true Arab. I had forgotten the photograph taken when I was nine years old in war-torn Beirut, never having seen, heard of, or even known what a lesbian, let alone a Western invention, was. A photo that captures me standing, suave, hands in pockets, wearing a gray and white checkered suit with a proper tie. I had been made to forget that photo, to ignore the evident nativity of my gender and sexual orientations in relation to all around me. Even if they were just constructs, which I do not believe, they were constructed here. They were made in Lebanon by a Palestinian child in the privacy of a few cubic centimeters that made up the self. I owned them, those so-called constructions. My Arabness owned those so-called fabrications, and there was never any dispute in those early days. Right, I'm going to leave the rest for you to read. And then... I have one of the compulsions to do this, this collection, this anthology, was that I have met, because 
of Traveling with Di and so many others, so many brave women all over the world who are refusing their place in national scripts who are willing to cross borders. So we have Lepa and Igbali, we have uh, Belgrade and Pristina, we have, we have codes of hatred that are being broken. In Ljubljana, you'll see, all of them are here. And it, so what, for me, it was the exiling of dissent, that, um, and particularly as an anti-occupation Jew. So if I just can calm down a little bit, I will find my own peace. <laughs> You will find many countries. Joan, let's calm down. Lesbians who speak beyond the pale, the exiling of dissent. So um, it was because of something that happened in the New York Gay Center, the largest gay center in the world, where Sarah Schulman, the lesbian Jewish writer, was exiled from reading there because she had written a book critiquing the Israeli occupation of Palestine. It's a big deal to have the Gay Center in New York City censor and silence one of the major Jewish lesbian writers of our times. Um, and I said here, I sometimes come late to New York news stories here on the southern rim of the Pacific, and so I had not read the lengthy report about what had happened at New York's LGBTI Center in 2011 when its directors decided to ban groups and events deemed too controversial. But I had seen the broken rainbow logo with a tear dripping from the fissure at its center. In times of heightened national certainties, where one can easily be seen as betraying the national or community narrative, these cracks, these ruptures of false unities are precious terrains. We become larger than ourselves, our intersectionalities, our histories all worn on the same body, now catapult us beyond our queer community borders. And as uh, Pauline Park was a transgendered uh, woman, wrote in the coverage of the events, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict breaks out at the New York City LGBT Community Center. Okay, and then further on in the essay, I have been following the closing down of public discourse which questions the legit le legitimacy of the Israeli occupation here in Australia and in America for several years now, such as the firing of teachers who hold unwanted opinions, the closing of debate, the stigmatizing of anti-occupation public figures, the canceling of films, the picketing and protesting of lesbian writers who have spoken out, such as Judith Butler and Yasbia Puah, whose work and person have been ridiculed and defamed for showing the links between gay and lesbian sexual rights and the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. But I was stopped in my tracks by all that was happening in the heart of New York's gay community. It was gay people who made the decision to censor Sarah Schulman. Okay, here we go. Um, these are some of the issues Yasmin and I were trying to raise. Uh, as we have said, the editors are aware that the prevailing view is that lesbians have always been in a state of exile. Decades of marginality prove this. To be a lesbian, we often said, is to resist the state. But what if the state, and this is an American context, so, but what if the state offers us money for our film and literary festivals, for our pride marches, for our centers, for our political support? What if the state holds out a passport to the center of things by granting marriage rights and unfettered military service? 
What if the state says, join us in national agendas of banishment and you will be part of the nation? To be anti-Palestinian, to promote hateful oversimplifications of Muslims and Islam, to, pre to pretend queer Muslims do not exist, to support Israel no matter what codes of international law it chooses to ignore, because like America, it occupies an exceptional place in today's fear-filled world. What if we partner with national whiteness and exile brown bodies whose cultural heritage falls outside what is deemed safe? What if we accept the rule of consumer corporate economies and in so doing come to agree with the state about which lives deserve to be lived in dignity and which deaths are not to be mourned, which bodies must be protected and which can be allowed, indeed required, to be broken under state-sponsored torture? Will we not change our lesbian selves so long used to seeing resistance in our touch, in our culture, in our feminist politics into something else? A wanted national self who is welcomed into her walled home. Okay. And now I have the great honor to read from Joan's own work. <laughs> but we're not hearing you. Right. Um, this is from Encounters on the Border. Fitzgibbon Avenue. Giovanna, come in, come in. Anna opens the screen door and leads me down the corridor that runs from the front to the back of her house. Where's Diana? At work. Good, good. I just want everything to be all right. Before we reach the kitchen, she turns off into one of the immaculate bedrooms. Here, I want to show you my mother. <coughs> On the tall chest of drawers stands a group of fading sepia-toned photographs. A woman from, from another time locks eyes with me, hair severely drawn back, hands folded over her apron, arms bare. Mia madre, strong woman, hard-working woman. Anna holds the aging image in her own 74-year-old hands, work-hardened. I miss her, so Giovanna, so many years, and I miss her. She died over there, and I could not get to see her. So sad, so sad. Anna stands with her hand over her heart. I know over there is a small town in Calabria. Over 45 years ago, Anna came to Australia to work in the textile factories, raised her children here. I say words about how hard it is to leave one's family, thinking of how Anna always asks me, who did I leave behind? We stand in silence, looking at the faces of her history, encased in silver frames. Once I walked down steep streets that led to the sea. Once I sang my language. Once I felt those hands brush tears off my face. Now what can I do? The Australian Anna returns, rubs her eyes. Come now and have some coffee. Anna is clear. Life was too hard in Italy. Her sorrow is stern, but everlasting. Dawson Street. What does change of worlds bring us? No matter how long I am here, says Mr. Fromm, I will still long for Saigon, like you for New York. 
that the night is dark and Mr. P has to get up at dawn to chop and simmer in the kitchen of the Vietnamese restaurant on the high street. We laugh, an odd couple, the small, wiry man, always a lit cigarette in his hand, who so loves his family and his God that he barely has time for his other passion, music. And me, stumbling my way through this new world I found myself in when I turned 62. The late-night tram clatters alongside us on its way down Dawson to West Garth Street. I had been visiting the Froms in their sunshine home, a growing Vietnamese residential neighborhood. We speak of our longing for bustling cities as we drive through empty streets. And when he says again, Saigon, with a puff of smoke, I'm flooded with memories I have no right to have. The intrigues of a war-torn city, the sounds of a cosmopolitan humid city fighting for its life, thin, work-worn farmers and laughing, frightened soldiers, the longing for urbanities, the thick flow of life through rivers of streets that speak of known histories, tumults of lost sounds, different but vibrant, become stars in our night sky. Now this is the end, and I'm going to end with a reading from Yasmin's brilliant... um, Okay, she'll get embarrassed, but wonderful piece called Constellations. And it has three characters, it's, but its hugest character, I think, is history, colonization, and movement. Okay. Uh, the disruptions caused by resistance, uh, particularly in a genderedly different body or... Okay. So you have the captain, the rebel, and the old woman. And I'll read the first... It's it's in sections. I'll read the first part and then another part. In the hours between midnight and dawn, the sea draws down the stars. Not all, but enough to drape the waves with luminescence. The captain knows this. On nights without sleep... When the wind drops and rivulets of salt leak through skin to join the ocean spray, the captain has marveled. This is not a phenomena in the seas off the captain's home, an island far away to the east, beyond the Cape of Good Hope and Lost Dreams in the real Indies, the ones that white men thought they'd reach by going west. It is instead a feature of the waters between the great continent of Africa and the other land mass in the direction of the sun's setting, particular to the currents that wash the islands whose old names disappeared with their slaughtered peoples. Another section starts, People are the stories they leave behind. And now, in the voice of the old woman... On a night when the moon has retired to change faces, at a deserted beach near Pointe-à-Pierre on the island that hurricanes shun, the captain rows cargo from ship to shore. This is not unusual. The captain bears risk to shield her crew. Yet this time, it's not just a matter of guns and their seasons. At dawn on a plantation wreathed in humidity and redolent with sweat and despair, the slaves revolt. 
At first, there is no whisper of weapons, only an entreaty to justice, the right to be treated as humans. But in this history, that right has always been weighted. The master refuses. The soldiers duly approach. The rebels run. Someone fires. The troops respond. Someone falls. Some rebels race into the woods. The soldiers follow. To distract them, someone breaks from the encircling. The soldiers fire. The figure stumbles, picks up, and drags, limping into the sea. The waves redden. The figure swims. Blood trails. The figure is brave. But the body has its limits. The soldiers watch it sink. A gift to be cherished must be passed on. I just, if I can interrupt, maybe that's what this journal is. To pass on all these moments of a slight, of confusions of place and heart and identities and loyalties and the courage to be called a traitor when it's the right time to be called a traitor. The rebel wakes to gently rocking waves, bandages and instruments bloody in a bowl. The captain sits by her watching. The captain smiles and looks away. The rebel is confused as the pain dulled, as the pain dulled by rum and cocoa recedes. The rebel begins to understand She tells the captain a story. In a great house in the Naparimas, there lived a girl. She had all a child could desire, loving parents, adoring siblings, a caring governess. One day, when she was six years old, she wandered away into the cane fields by her home. She saw a whip in a hand as black as hers. It descended on backs as black as her siblings. The governess found her frightened, but would not answer her whys. The memory was etched like roofs ground in rock by the sea. Her anger grew with her at everyone telling her, leave things be. Nearing womanhood with proposals of marriage circling, a slave girlfriend helped her run away, but this was not enough. She bound her breasts and clipped short her hair. A man always gets away with more than a woman. In Port of Spain, an accounts clerk in the governor's employ took on a black assistant. The youth was bright and mischievous, quick to learn and laughter. A sergeant of the governor's guard, a free black, acquired a drinking buddy in exchange for swordplay and the knowledge of guns. Keeping company with the port's prostitutes and rag pickers, the youth collected stories unfit for respectable folk. One day, a slave who had rebelled against his master was held in the governor's prison. Next day, his cell was empty. The soldiers were flummoxed. The prostitutes hid a man until he caught ship. He was not their client. Three guards were flogged for being remiss. The youth commiserated with the soldier friend and went out into the night with a smile. A ball of twine began to form. The captain listens and touches the rebel's face. The rebel drifts into sleep, her heart anchored, and the story goes on. So, Yasmin, that's our end, right? Yasmin and I, thank you. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you so much. And now it's talk. Everybody can talk and ask questions or whatever. Yeah. Hi. (laughs) 
So my question is about how you um, got the group of people together um, to to make this this issue of the journal. So some people were friends, people that you knew. Were there other people that you sort of thought, oh, I really respect this woman or I've read her work or I want to have this type of story or this representation? Like, how did you go about the process of curating it? <laughs> Well, first was the usual process, sinister wisdom, because it's been in existence for so long, you know, has its own um, mailing list and things. And so, okay. so we asked Julie to send out an announcement of this was our theme. And then, so women sent things, so we have some things that way. And then, as I said, from I did have certain bees in my bonnet. One of them... It was Yasmin's writing that I had known for so many years. And, and, but the other was the writing of Lepa, Melechinovic, and her exchange of letters with Iqbal, um, a woman from Kosovo. These are two women who were meant to hate each other. And I, I was so stunned. By the way, the piece I had read is devoted to the Pussy Riot women because they are at the spirit. So, yes, it was known people. And then... We, move, we in, move in different worlds and different times. And so Yasmin had a whole group of friends that I didn't know, like the wonderful Naina who did the, front, the artwork on the front. So it was a combination of getting the word out. But what was interesting, both in Australia and in New York City, you know, and then around the world. So. Yeah, that's, that's pretty much what happened. I think um, we'd also... Um, um, it, it was interesting what was gleaned from the call that went out from the journal itself. So there were submissions that were particular to the theme that we'd requested. And others who had regularly submitted to Sinister Wisdom uh, and who had sort of sent in their submissions and one or two pieces we thought, oh, it wouldn't be interesting to have them be part of this particular journal issue. Not necessarily because they um, addressed the theme directly, but because of the questions that would have been generated by including those pieces. So there were one or two items that we, we went with for that reason as well. Other questions, anyone? Could you, you said at the start when you um, were talking about how in this issue um, of the journal, Sinister Wisdom was doing things that it hadn't done before. Could you elaborate more on that? Yes, that was just the next thing. Because one of the cons we want, right, now this is, the thing was that um, I'm also on the board of Sinister Wisdom, which I'd totally forgotten. Adrian Rich had asked me 30 years ago to be on the board. And Adrian Rich and I had very different sexual politics. Um, and I am not what I would call, and this may be too much, or, and this is just me, I'm not what I call a cultural feminist. I don't believe everything, I don't... I like, I, okay, so and sinisterism is pretty much grew out of the days of lesbian separatism and that. But I did believe that there could be new sinisterisms, that there could be new expressions of lesbian sexualities. So it was important for us, and if you read, you'll see, that there'd be a transgendered woman in, or there'd be transgendered experience in this collection, which was a first for Sinister wisdom. Um, and 
So I think that's the primary one. Plus, and I'll just say, what really showed me something, Julie Enzer is, is, is a, a Jewish woman who deeply respects Israel, and I thought at any moment she'd write and say, you can't, I won't publish this. She never did. She never did. And then it was really, oh, we didn't show Kaluz. Oh, yeah, we did. And then it was, so it was more international. And also, we made it political from the beginning. You can't talk about exile without being political. And sinister wisdom sees itself as a cultural arts. So we, it was more political. It was you know, about world politics that were not necessarily mocked by lesbian, except the writers were, you know, that kind of thing. And that will make some people very angry and some people very happy. Yeah, but I, I think what I found attractive was the fact that Joan said, um, you, you know, you, we have to talk about exile. And, and for someone like me, being a lesbian is, actually, for me personally, the last on the whole list of exilic experiences. Um, I've, you know, whatever I've, you know, had to put up with being Tamil, being a person of color, being displaced across national borders, or even for uh, self-presenting, um, I'm often read as a man, uh, and, and not as being a woman, and therefore the kinds of experiences of racism that I go through often enough ha have been experiences that men of color in the U.S. would talk about. The fact that I love women sexually and emotionally has often has absolutely nothing to do with it. So for me, it was really important um, that when you know Joan said, "Well, look, you know, we can't talk about exile without actually talking about politics," you know, even sort of what is considered in a mainstream way to be politics. Uh, and I said, yeah, let's go for it. Uh, and that was, for me, very uh, liberating. And I know not just for me, but for, to include people like Samar Habib, uh, Lepa and Iqbali, um, even Cheyenne Glynn, whose piece I read out, who uh, has, uh, and I'm sorry I didn't read her, her bio statement, but Cheyenne grew up in, you know, in, in the projects in, in the Bronx. And so it's this woman who, who you know, treasures education, came from that kind of background. Uh, and I thought, you know, it's incidental that she's a lesbian writing about this stuff, you know? Um, and, that's, and I loved her piece for that. Um, so, yeah. So, and, and I agree completely with Joan when she said hats off to Julie Enzer because um, I, I think she certainly had to stretch herself to accommodate this issue, and she did, and she really did. Any other questions? No, we have just one. The motto is when an editor, as it may happen, any time writes to you and says, please send us something, do it. Take pity on us and do it. <laughs> anyway. I, I actually know there's someone in the room at the moment who is going to send you something, so, but we'll keep that secret. Anyone else? So we just need now to thank Yasmin and Joan for being here, for launching this book. Well, not launching, celebrating the book. Plenty of copies here. I've been reading it through the entire session while you've been reading it as well, and uh, it's beautiful. Thank so thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah. Yes, and you don't know until you go to other places, really, how precious a bookstore like Hairs and Hyenas is, like Blue Stockings in New York. And they go on a limb to order an American-made journal, so please... If you haven't bought it one, or think of a friend to buy it for, because I don't, I want, I don't want hares and hyenas to go into a deficit. We won't. It's us. okay. okay. <laughs> It'd be Thank good you. to have it for quite a while. Okay. Thank you all. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.